Well, I'm here with Steve Green, who is the president of Hobby Lobby. And Steve, you've been president, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, almost 20 years. Uh, something like that, yeah. And in that time, uh, your company has grown. This is a family-owned and operated company, but it has grown to, again, correct me if I'm wrong, 900 stores thereabouts? We, yeah, we will hit 1,000 this year, later a, this year. A so uh, we'll hit 1,000. And uh, nearly every state in the union. We're in 47 of the 48 states. Okay. We're not looking at Alaska or Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, so we, we will be in 48 uh, later this year as well. Okay, 48 states, oh, well over 40,000 employees. Yes. This is a, a massive operation, very successful company. It's, uh, in some ways, it's a household name, uh, especially for those who love uh, hobby That's and crafting right. and that sort of thing. But of course, it's well known beyond that. Even people who don't frequent the store know you, know the store, know your family name. Uh, but I don't want to primarily talk about that. I want to talk to you about your love for the scriptures. So you have dedicated a, a, a vast amount of your energy and resources to the preservation of the scriptures you've written about the Bible. This is a, a genuine, genuine love of yours. So um, help us understand, what is it about the scripture that has captivated you in this way? You know, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were uh, faithful. They grew up in Christian homes as well, and uh, we regularly attended church. And so I uh, grew up with uh, an appreciation, a love for scripture, uh, had a faith at an early age. And um, I remember uh, there's probably a variety of uh, things that uh, added to it, but I remember when I was a senior in high school, my brother was at college, and my dad called him up and said he was interested in putting in a Christian bookstore and an office mm -hmm. supply store combination. I wouldn't know if he'd want to uh, run that company. Uh, and my brother said, you bet, came home, and I was kind of jealous. I said, well, that yeah. sounds fun, running a Christian bookstore, you yes. know, selling Bibles and all these book resources. And... Um, I can remember going through a bookstore and just having this desire to say, boy, I wish I knew all of the knowledge that's in all these books. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's being written about the Bible yeah. and and a hunger to know more of God's Word, to know it more intimately uh, developed. I remember reading uh, Joshua McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict um, and solidifying the that this book is real. I mean, yeah. there's evidence for it. Um, and uh, so it, it just is a process of a variety of things like that that uh, uh, has grown in uh, my life and um, and continues to grow. It, 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 that's uh, fun to hear a bit of your story. My One of my first jobs in high school was working at the Gift and Bible in Lansing, Michigan. And I had that same experience. I'd walk through the shelves and think, boy, there's a lot to know about all of this. I, how do I learn it? Yeah. So that was before my call to pastoral ministry, but very fun. Well, I have a lightning round here right up front. I okay. just want to get to a bunch of questions. Short answer, favorite book of the Bible? Um, John. John, all right. Favorite person in the Bible besides the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? <laughs> Uh, how about David, King David? David, King David, very good. All right. Uh, favorite translation of the Bible? ESV. ESV, a very fine translation. Okay, paper or electronic? Um, I like both. I use the electronic more. Okay, so. very. That's a fair answer. What is one resource that you use uh, that besides the Bible that you, guides you either in Bible study or or 
just you you use this more than uh, other resources. Logos Bible uh, ah. program um, yes. have that, and uh, doing research for teaching a class or something. It's kind of my go to. You know, I'll have to reach out to the Logos people and see if they will be corporate sponsors for this. Uh, there you go. Yeah, huge fan of that myself as well. All right, what is your personal habits when it comes to reading the Bible? Uh, read daily, um, and it's kind of a year by year. This year, I'm reading through the Bible uh, chronologically. Yes. Uh, last year, it was mainly just reading through the Psalms over and over yeah. throughout the year. But uh, daily, and uh, this year, uh, your chronological uh, Bible in a year. You know, that always sounds good until you get into the redundancy of the Kings and Chronicles, right? Yeah. Uh, there's some, I, I did that one year. Great way to do that, though. Well, let me shift gears. I want to talk about Museum of the Bible, because this is uh, just this remarkable uh, ministry organization that you have poured yourself into. Many people love the Bible. Uh you happen to invest yourself so deeply and created a museum of the Bible. So, uh, what? Where did that vision come from? Well, I kind of laugh some. Just say they are grateful for for my vision on that, and I said, "Well, it wasn't my vision. Uh, it was some other guys that wanted to put a Bible museum in Dallas, which oh, got us started. Okay. Um, then we started." buying some items that were available for their museum project. Mm -hmm. And uh, as our collection grew, um, we felt this sense of responsibility that maybe we needed to be sure the dream became a reality. Yeah. It wasn't a foreign concept. My yeah. brother, as I mentioned, opened yeah. a Christian bookstore and had mentioned putting in a Bible museum would be a neat yeah. idea, uh, but not something that we were had on the agenda. It wasn't planned. So we were looking at helping these guys, and then as our collection grew, we just felt like maybe we need to be sure it happened. We had the resources to get it started. We had a growing collection, and those guys hadn't either. So somewhat by default, it became our project, and uh, Jackie and myself got to be the point uh, people for the project for the family. And uh, so I can remember sitting down saying, I just don't have a vision for mm -hmm. a museum. Can you explain what that yeah. looks like uh, sure. from these guys? And they kind of outlined different galleries that yeah. they saw. And I think about the only thing I really added was kind of categorizing them into three buckets, the uh -huh. history, impact, and narrative, sure. which we have three floors in the museum, one for each of those. Um, and, um, and then we engaged some uh, leading design firms to help us tell the story in an engaging way. Um, so it really evolved, and yeah. it, it, I can literally say this was not my vision. It was God's idea that we got to fulfill, uh, and it was an exciting journey. Uh, I got to meet with a lot of uh, very smart people and yeah. uh, brilliant Bible scholars, uh, and it's been a learning process and only added to my love uh, yeah. for the Scripture. The more I know, the more I realize this is an incredible book. So it is been quite an, a journey. Uh, it's an incredible book. Do you remember the first artifact you acquired? We did. It was a Richard Roll, uh, a uh, Psalms translated into English by a gentleman by the name of Richard Roll for nuns. Huh. And uh, it, uh, it predates uh, Wycliffe by, I think it was about 40 years or so. Oh, so my. it was an early English okay. translation, and um, it came up for auction, and we acquired it, and it's uh, on the museum floor today. How about that? So uh, with that in mind, is there an artifact that uh, when you hold it in your hands, it just takes your breath away? Well, the one that I continue to go to is not even an artifact. It's a replica of an artifact. Okay. Uh, it is the replica of the great Isaiah scroll. Sure. And I don't hold it in my hands often, but mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've had it. Uh, it's on display 
because of the incredible story that it tells. Yeah. Um, you know, a thousand years older than the Mesoretic text that we had, yeah. and yet it's the same thing. Yeah. There will be some that will try to discredit Scripture, saying that yeah. we can't rely on it. It's been transmitted over the years. It's changed, yeah. and it's not what it was. Well, here's a thousand-year yeah. gap, yeah. and it was the same thing. Some minor variations, yeah. but it was the same thing. An incredible witness to the validity of Scripture, to the job the Jewish people did in transmitting Scripture. They were given a job. They mm-hmm. took it seriously, and they did their job well. Uh, we have a, a scribe in the museum today that is doing a Torah scroll, and uh, it's not just a job, it's it's a calling. Yeah. And uh, you can sit there and talk to the guy. He's a great guy. He'd love to talk to people yeah. and let people realize how much of a passion this is for the Jewish people. Yeah, anytime someone uh, picks apart the Bible as being unreliable, you can pretty well rest assured they have done no research on this. Yeah, They haven't dug into it. They haven't asked the hard questions. They've just repeated something they picked up on Twitter somewhere. But, yeah. but to actually know how these things were... Yeah. Done. Well, and and another point that I like making on the Great Isaiah Scrolls, there's five writers in the New mm-hmm. Testament that are pointing to Isaiah 53, saying Jesus is fulfilling it. Yes. Luke is one of them that tells yeah. us what Jesus said at the Last Supper. He mm-hmm. says, "I must fulfill what was written about me." He was numbered with the transgressors. He is quoting Isaiah 53. So here's five writers saying that Jesus is fulfilling mm-hmm. Isaiah 53, yeah. and. And the Great Isaiah Scroll predates Christ one to two hundred years. Yeah, tell me what's going to happen in one to two hundred years with the amount of specificity that Isaiah fifty three is showing how that Christ is going to suffer. Um, and so, I will argue that is not only an example the Great Isaiah Scroll of its validity, but that is an argument that it's divine. The timeline for the Great Isaiah Scroll is seven hundred years before Christ. Yeah, I don't have a witness an evidence of that, but I've got this document that's one to 200 years before Christ, mm-hmm. clearly depicting Christ. And if Christ, God can do that 200 years, he can do it 700 years. So 700 years before crucifixion was even invented, mm-hmm. um, Isaiah is, is describing what's going to happen to Christ. It's such a remarkable aspect to it. I've heard scholars refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel sometimes. Uh, when I teach out of the gospels, if I get to that part uh, in the gospels, or even teaching out of the Apostle Paul, I'll sometimes reference, I'll say... I don't know this for a fact, but my guess is they always had that scroll of Isaiah with them. It seemed yeah. to be like one of the greatest hits of the Old Testament that guys knew because it seems to get referenced a lot. Well, I was just reading the other day that it is Isaiah is the second most quoted book in the New Testament from the mm-hmm. Old Testament, Psalm yeah. only after Psalms. Yeah. Um, so makes uh, sense. Uh, I, <clears throat> I, uh, I uh, in my youth, didn't appreciate the Psalms, the major prophets, or the minor prophets. I hit midlife, and I realized, oh, I finally got them. They they were the people who would stand on the breach and go, the, the world's falling apart, people. Why aren't you paying attention? But when I was young, I thought, nah, this is great. This is yeah. great. You get a little... You get a little uh, uh, tread uh, worn off the tires. You start to realize, no, no, the the world needs to hear this. So I now look forward to every time I encounter the the prophets. All right, is there something at the museum that you always make time to see when you're there? Well, we will have uh, temporary exhibit space. Okay. And those uh, spaces will rotate and change, so there's always something new to see. Okay. we just uh, installed a scripture and science exhibit in uh, one of our exhi- uh, temporary exhibit spaces and has received some very uh, good uh, result, uh, reviews from our yeah. visitors and uh, really is an intriguing space and asks some of the big questions. Mm-hmm. And it really shows how that while there's this, 
this thought that science and and the Bible conflict with each other. No, there's actually a lot of great unity within them. Yeah. Uh, first example is how did it all begin? There was a point where people thought the earth has always been here. Mm-hmm. Well, the Bible says there was a beginning. In the yeah. beginning, God created. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually science figured out, oh, there was a beginning. There was a point yeah. where this all began because when you reverse what's yeah. going on today, there was a point of beginning. So there's actually a lot of uh, consistency with Scripture and science, and the, the exhibit kind of goes through that. With that in mind, um, there's two audiences that go to the museum. There's the there's the believer who is goes to Washington, D.C., and they go, this is on my list. I want to see this more, and I want to see the Lincoln Memorial. And then there's the person who, uh, for one reason or another, finds their way there, but they're not particularly a believer. So what is the impact you hope that the museum has on both of those groups of people? For, for, for the believer, hopefully it, it just deepens their appreciation, love, yeah. their, their faith is, is uh, strengthened uh, through this scripture. But it, it, it was really built with the, we'll call it the atheist or the uh, skeptic in sure. mind. Yeah. Uh, we specifically looked at doing it where we're not espousing faith, and mm-hmm. that creates some heartburn for some that yeah. want us to be overtly espousing sure. our faith. Um, and I can appreciate that, and we support many ministries that do that. Mm-hmm. But the museum is a museum. And so yeah. we need to do museum well. And the example I had, I, I used to kind of describe it is there was one of the placards that uh, that I was reviewing, and um, it made a reference to the sacred text that it was talking about. And mm. I said, "Well, why do we? Why do you call it sacred?" Mm. Now, I believe it's sacred. Yes. The atheist doesn't. Right. So when I say it's sacred, it immediately is off-putting to the atheist. So let's just call it biblical text. Yeah. It's not offensive to me. It's mm-hmm. yeah, it's a biblical text. But the atheist can agree yeah. with that as well. That's the balance we're trying to 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 balance. Sure. Uh, so that the atheist come comes in and is not off-put. They're just yeah. saying, yeah, you're just telling me the facts and here's its history, its impact, and its narrative. And um, so as we do that, hopefully they feel comfortable, invited. Mm-hmm. And we'll know that we're just presenting the facts of this book, and we're going to let you decide. I think that causes the person that is skeptical, skeptical to be uh, more uh, attuned to what we're we're saying and maybe yeah. listening a little bit more than if I were overtly espousing our faith. And we have one card that kind of uh, uh, testifies to that. He, the guy says, I'm an atheist. But I love this place. Wow! And so, if yeah. we can cause a person to realize, we just want to. We want to. This is an incredible book. Let yeah. me tell you the facts about it. I'm going to yeah. be honest about it. And it's it's a here are the facts, and that's kind of what we leave uh, lean on. Well, and you mentioned this uh, is incredible book. You've written a uh, one of your books is this dangerous book. You and your wife Jackie uh, worked on it together. I'm I'm curious, what is it about this book? You you mentioned you call it a dangerous book. It uh, there's places in the world where it's illegal to possess one. If you distribute it, you'll be arrested or worse. Um, what is it about this incredible book that has that dramatic impact on people? Yeah, I'd say it's dangerous, really, in uh, two two ways. Um, to know this book uh, is dangerous. If you're going to know this book and follow its principles in some parts mm-hmm. of this world, it will cost you your, your life, and it has throughout history yeah. created that. Scripture gives us examples uh, of uh, Daniel facing the lion's den, the three mm-hmm. Hebrew children, and fiery furnace, those kinds of—as mm-hmm. they're following their faith, it yeah. was dangerous for them. Yeah. 
Um, I would argue also that it's dangerous not to know this book. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Our nation was built on principles found in this book. Uh, a lot of what we benefit today yeah. is because of the principles our nation is built on. We have three branches of government because our founders recognized the depravity of man, mm-hmm. that if yeah. we, we have to have some checks and balances because we have the tendency, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and, mm-hmm. and we've got to have that checks and balance. So they understood what Scripture teaches us. And for us to not know that and start walking away from what, some of those principles that served our nation well yeah. – will be to our detriment. So it is dangerous in that sense not to know this book. Sure. So um, uh, whether you want to know it or not, uh, the book can be dangerous. Well, then it seems that placing the museum in Washington, D.C. was strategic and wise because of the influence of Washington, putting it, putting it near the Smithsonian array of museums and so forth. Um, you mentioned the initial vision for this was uh, from others to be in Dallas. Right. Uh, you live here in Oklahoma City. I personally would prefer if it was right here around the corner from my house so I could pretty much visit it every day. Uh, but it's in Washington, D.C. How did that come about? Yeah. By the way, the mayor of Oklahoma City at the time did call and say, why don't you put it right here? I said, well, I bet he did. for selfish reasons, I would love to. I think it needs to be where it will be of most impact. Yeah. Dallas is a major metropolitan, no problem. It's obvious yeah. it's close to here as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So I thought that was good. But but when it kind of became our project, I thought, well, what if God doesn't want it in Dallas? I wanted him to know we were willing to go wherever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I look at the top 10 metros, and the other two that stood out to me were New York City and Washington, D.C. Sure. So we engaged a gentleman to look in all three of those cities. And uh, then we did a survey, a nationwide survey, uh, primarily asking if we build it, will they come? Mm-hmm. That answer was overwhelmingly yes. And uh, we also asked if they'd attend it in Dallas, New York, or D.C., and it showed D.C. would be best. Uh, New York mm-hmm. second, Dallas was third. So said, well, let's focus on D.C. If God wants it in Timbuktu, yeah. he will show up, make it clear, and we'll go wherever. Yeah. He can do that. Yeah. But in the meantime, let's focus on D.C. and see what shows up. And that's why we we landed there because – and it really just makes sense. It is the hub of museums yeah. in our nation, as you alluded yeah. to. So mm-hmm. uh, it just made sense. Um, I have to laugh when uh, some chide us. You're, you're just putting in D.C. because you're trying to have an impact on Congress. And I say, who's not in D.C. because they're trying to have an impact on yeah. Congress? Yeah, that's a – And what would be wrong if we were there to try to impact Congress? Our Congress should understand that the principles of the government that they're managing comes from Scripture. Uh, They should know this book, and we hope that they do come in and and learn about the the connection between our founders and the principles our nation uh, has been built on. So um, it was one where, in hindsight, you just say, I think uh, God knew where he wanted it, and he directed us there. Well, you know, on that note of the impact on Congress or impact on others, uh, let's fast forward 50, 100 years into the future, and let's say the Museum of the Bible is thriving. What's the same about it and what's different? Well, I think what is the same is the the three ways we look at history, impact, and narrative. Mm-hmm. The Bible has primarily been attacked in one of two ways. Is it true and is it good? Mm. The history floor is really addressing, is this book true? Now, you won't see us saying that it's true, um, but the evidence for this book, archaeological evidence, the manuscript evidence, is incredible. And so we're presenting that evidence. Um, Is it good is what the impact floor is showing. Mm -hmm. Uh, This book has had an impact on every area of life. And when followed as God intended, it has been good. 
Uh, and the, the story floor is for the person that doesn't know anything. And there will be people always that won't know anything, and you have to start. Sure. Where do you start? Let me tell you what the story of the Bible is. So uh, trying to uh, address those issues, I think, will be consistent. Uh, I think that there will continue to be evidence, mm -hmm. and we will continue to show the new evidence that shows up every year. Uh, mm -hmm. There, There's more uh, sure. that comes out. And so uh, the temporary exhibit space, there's always more to tell. Yeah. As I have said, we are scratching the surface of this book story because there is no building that can contain this book story. Yeah. And um, uh, as we continue to find evidence, uh, we will continue to be telling new stories and uh, have opportunity to tell uh, diff different and exciting ways of telling those stories. So if they dig up the Ark of the Covenant, you'd make a space in the Museum of the Bible yeah. for the Ark. Yeah, yeah I don't know if, that is. Yeah, I don't know if we'd actually get Noah's Ark fit in there, but we would you give know, it a try. You could, try. But, you could uh, at least get some of the The Ark wood. of the Covenant, I think we yeah, would find a space. Yeah. On that note, though, uh, what is something that we have dug out of the earth? It does exist somewhere, but it isn't in the collection of the Museum of the Bible. But if you could have it on permanent display or semi-permanent display, have you have you thought about the pardon the term the Holy Grail? Something that you say, oh, if we could get this in here, like King Tut's mask is for some museums, what would be your what would be? Yeah, your thing? well, you know, if if the Ark of the Covenant were ever found, that would be that would incredible. Be cool. You know, I don't I'd know visit. about that, but mm -hmm. I, I don't. Uh, what what I think of is the the new stuff that comes out all the time and. Um, the museum has been a part of a dig that within the last year, last summer, kind of came up with some new discovery in, in itself. Yeah. It was a uh, the new city of Bethsaida. There is a site oh. in in Israel that's kind of labeled as Bethsaida, but yeah. uh, I think scholars are realizing that it's not the real Bethsaida. What mm -hmm. has been dug over the last about three years is the site of Bethsaida, which mm -hmm. is a significant biblical site. Yeah. Jesus was there and yeah. uh, the, the home of Peter. Um, wow. And so... There was a church that had claimed to be built over Peter's home, and they found the floor of this church. And so wow. an example of just new evidence that's coming up yeah. that would be neat to be able to tell that story and show here's here's just more evidence. Uh, another brick mm -hmm. that you can add to the wall that is being built uh, evidence yeah. for this book. Well, that uh, I, I can't wait to see pictures of that. That'll be exciting. But I, I think that uh, there's just so much, as you say, we're just scratching the surface. So it'll be neat to see as the years transpire what comes and and the the exhibits and the way the story is told. Let me shift gears and uh, just uh, you're you're not only an expert on things related to the Bible and the preservation and the telling of the story, but you're also a very fine business leader. And, uh, and you have written, for, my first question is, is around what you've written. You've written books on the Bible. Are you ever going to write a book on the integration of faith and business leadership? Or is there any, uh, or maybe uh, if the answer is probably not, why not? Yeah. Well, if not, and uh, I don't, I, I'm not a big fan of writing books. I've I have written some. I'm mm -hmm. typically somebody else has encouraged me to do it, and that's why I do mm -hmm. it. But if not, it's because I think my dad has covered that in some of the books that he has written. Certainly, more than a hobby. The first book that he has written, uh, yeah. most recent book, um, yeah. uh, business not by the book, where he's yeah. dealing with some of that. Yeah. So uh, he has, uh, I think, done a good job of uh, telling some of that story and why. I don't know that I would have to do that. That's a good point. When the book's already been written, 
you just go that yeah. one. Yeah. I totally understand. I have different books I think about writing and then it comes out and I'm like, well, I guess not. Yeah. So, um, but with the idea of, of business leadership, one of the things when I think of Steve Green, I think of this integration and really this is your whole family too, uh, is that integration of faith in, in solid business practices. And yet uh, that, that sounds noble, but that can be difficult to integrate those two. There's plenty of people who claim to be Christian and uh, maybe business practices don't necessarily reflect their faith or vice versa. Um, uh, their, their business is lousy, even they're great Christians, you know. So you, God's blessed your family, your business. Um, is there a process you go through, uh, a, a grid or a, a thought structure you go through so that uh, you always act as best you can in a way that honors God and conducts sound, uh, stable business practices? Yeah, I think you, it, it has to do with putting priorities, uh, making priorities right. And, uh, you know, some people like to try to say, you know, it's God first, family second, job. And, you know, it's kind of hard to categorize things. I think it's just God first, period. Yeah. Uh, when, when God's first, he will, will help you do your best to balance that not that you're ever going to get it exactly, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like I remember when we were having our first children, my my wife and I, we, we have six children as, as our first was coming, this sense that our first ministry is raising godly generations, is mm-hmm. raising our kids. That is our first calling, and we need to do that well. Um, then I've got to provide for the family. So I, mm-hmm. I need to go make do a job and do, yeah. do well there, be a good model and example to – those that uh, I come in contact at work and be the example and light there. Um, but um, the, and, and there's that balance. How do you do that well? Sometimes the ox is in the ditch and you just got to get in yeah. there and get it done. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's times that I was spending overseas on buying trips for 10 days and I, I'm leaving the family at home. And we had four kids and yeah. uh, young and homeschooling mm-hmm. and um, so there's, there's this balance. Uh, mm-hmm. Take time for the family and and try to do that well, and like I said, you, yeah. you, you mess up at times. But uh, knowing that if it's if it's God first, I'm here to do what God's called me to do. Then I think He helps us uh, when we get out of balance and trying to uh, get things in right order. But um, knowing uh, that me, our, our first calling is raising godly generation is the is the priority. Yeah, I hear I hear you. The the. Uh... Emphasis on putting God first in your life and that priority of family, that responsibility of family. And so often, uh, even faith leaders, that's not, you know, we, we see the the fruit of the neglect of that. Yep. And uh, and so that's a very wise to get that straight because so often we can be uh, pulled by some vision we have for life. But if we have a family, that's that's central to that vision for life. And, it, and I think it's easy, uh, or maybe it's more of a temptation when you're in ministry yeah. because you're thinking I'm doing God's work yes. and my family needs to mm-hmm. take the back seat. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yet um, I think we all have to realize God doesn't need any of us. Yeah. Um, he can replace us, and yeah. um, uh, he's called us first to raise our, our family, and yeah. we need to do that as best we can. Uh, and we're going to mess up there as well, but sure. uh, try to do our best there. Uh, in the culture that we live in today, and I don't know if this is truly unique about our culture. We say this is unique about our culture, 
um, but it might just be amplified because of social media. Uh, anyone who is a visible leader uh, falls under criticism by, uh, for all manner of purposes and reasons. And those of us in the household of faith, sometimes we're surprised by the critics we get from within the household of faith. And uh, I'm sure you have experienced criticism. Uh, anyone who's in a visible post does. How do you keep um, thick skin and a soft heart? So you some some leaders go on the attack or they uh, become jaded or cynical. And I don't sense that from you at all. I haven't seen any evidence of that. So how do you keep that thick skin and that soft heart? Yeah, I think that um, I go back to when we were in a, a suit against the government that wound up going to the Supreme Court because of uh, the government requiring us to pro provide abortifacients. And mm -hmm. uh, we were a lot of talk about the family yeah. and the business at that yeah. time. And I remember there was a point, you know, that you have to say there's only a certain amount of that that you can digest mm -hmm. and monitoring that. Yeah. There is sometimes value in in hearing complaints. Mm -hmm. There may be some validity to it. It may help your tone a little bit yeah. better. You sure. know, you, you could have done better. And yeah. so some of that criticism uh, uh, can be uh, of value and help mm -hmm. going forward. But if you feel beat up, there's times you say, I, I'm, I'm not in a position to hear a lot of that right mm -hmm. now. And I'm just going to not, I'm just going to put it aside yeah. because I'm going to, I'm going to God. That yeah. I, We've got an audience of one that we're trying to please. And uh, there's always going to be critics yeah. of no matter what you do, uh, right. there will be critics. And so... Um, uh, knowing the ap appetite that you have, uh, and, uh, and and even when you receive some of that for for improvement, um, going back to knowing that um, what what they think is not as important mm -hmm. as what God thinks, yeah. and that's what we care about. Well, that's good advice because that again, because social media just amplifies all of it. Yeah. I don't know that anything is particularly unique. We love to talk about how trying the times are, and I like to read dead authors. And uh, I was just reading some Charles Spurgeon, and he was talking about that very thing, the difficult days in which they were doing ministry. And I thought, oh, to go back in time and do it then, that would be easy. But we probably always have these challenges before us and to keep our heart sensitive before the Lord, even as, uh, as we live in an imperfect world. Well, along the same line of the integration of, of faith and business, um, most leaders face periods, or whether they're regular intervals or irregular intervals of anxiety or fear. And as Christians, we're called to place our, our concerns before the Lord. But then there's also a place, particularly in leadership, where you have to prepare for some unpleasant um, inevitabilities or possibilities. So how do you, how do you um, uh, walk that tightrope of either the, I'm just going to pray about it, and prepare for when the ox falls in the ditch. Yeah. You know, I think that uh, uh, I remember hearing a gentleman that just talked about how that he just had a struggle with his faith, mm -hmm. and he understood that and recognized that. Um, and uh, that was just somewhat the way he was built. Um, some, I think, are more have more of a propensity to be able to, have a faith and and yeah. not waver, um, and I, I think that I've been given some of that gift by God because I don't find myself 
getting as anxious as what others may. Um, mm -hmm. There are times, um, but um, I, I'm I'm just grateful that, um, and some of that could be the history and uh, that that I grew up in that helped strengthen mm -hmm. my faith. Um, but there are challenges. There are times that you have responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you have responsibility, boxes in the ditch, things are going wrong, mm -hmm. and you're having to make decisions, that then is where you see a weight of, okay, am I making the right decision? I've got to make a big decision, and it's a uh, 55%, 45%, mm -hmm. you know, in which way should I go? One day it's one way, and the next day it's the other way. And and you're, you you know it has an impact. Those, those are weighty decisions, and those are uh, areas where it can create more of an anxiety when mm -hmm. uh, when when that responsibility is on your shoulders. And so, uh, but again, you just have to <clears throat> uh, trust in God. And I think, to some degree, uh, what what I see is is I get a higher perspective. Mm -hmm. Typically, when you're into the weeds of a decision, it can be. You know, this is the biggest decision in the world's going to fall apart if it's wrong. Yeah. But when you zoom out and you mm -hmm. think of here's God's perspective, that decision's not as big as you think it sure. is. You know, even if you make the wrong decision, you know, God's not sweating. Yeah. Sun will still <laughs> uh, come up to him. Yeah. He can handle a wrong decision mm -hmm. at times. And so um, some of it is just trying to have a God perspective mm. uh, and realize that, um, uh, you know, God's in control and uh, he can even handle a bad decision, um, and that helps relieve some yeah. of the pressure, the tension, the anxiety sure. that comes. That's a good reminder. Uh, your legacy. What do you hope people say about you or how people remember you after your time on this earth has passed? I think that um, what I hope is that people will not see as much me as that they will see uh, just a person that's trying to serve God, uh, mm -hmm. and that their their life was committed to pointing people to the answer, uh, uh, which obviously uh, is is what Christ did for us on the cross. You know, I've I've mentioned many times that you know the Bible really points to one event, mm -hmm. and it's and it's what Christ did on this cross. It is the mm -hmm. event of Scripture. It is the event of history. Period, mm -hmm. and uh, because that is the event that gives hope, purpose, and meaning to life. And so uh, I would hope that as people see my life, they're, they're seeing that the focus was pointing people to that event. Yeah. Uh, that event is what gives us uh, purpose for living. Very good. Any, um, is there a question I should have asked that this whole time you're like, ask me that? Hmm. I don't, nothing comes to mind. All um, right. Well, then save that. Think about that because hopefully we'll get you back on this. Uh, interview again and uh, have you share even more with us. Steve, this has just been a delight. Thank you for carving out the time and for sharing with those who are watching and listening your heart, your experience, your passion for the Lord, His Word, and, and being a good, solid dad, husband, and businessman. So thank you, Steve. Thank you. Appreciate it. Enjoy the time.